I think that means the show's beginning, which is good. I mean, consider the alternatives. The show might not begin. Then what will we do? All right, so um, how to begin? So in 1993, I can't believe that this is 1993, um, the New Yorker cartoonist Peter Steiner published a cartoon. It's uh, one dog sitting at a computer screen while another dog sits on the floor. The dog is who's up on the chair at the computer screen says, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. What's kind of amazing is not only the degree to which that may have held true, but uh, and perhaps even expanded Hydra-like into multiple truths, but that he said that in 1990, there was barely any internet in 1993, so it's very impressive. And in a way, it's one of the themes, uh, I think, that snakes through uh, the book by our guest today. Lauren Euler's essays have appeared in the London Review of Books, The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Harper's Book Forum, New York Magazine's The Cut and Elsewhere, the ever-popular publication Elsewhere, uh, but her first novel, uh, Fake Accounts, long-awaited and uh, much anticipated, uh, is out right now, and she is joining us today to talk about it. Lauren Euler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I think maybe the best thing to do is rather than have me fumble through a synopsis, uh, why don't you just give us your preferred thumbnail description uh, of the novel? That also allows you to decide how much to spoil, which I have listened to you in a couple of other <laughs> yeah so I mean I yours. think it's only fair because I write so many book reviews and I often spoil you know sort of unapologetically spoil the endings um for you know I have good good reasons to do it but but it's only fair that I spoil my own um but it sounds like you don't want me to do it so I will just say that uh fake accounts is about a it takes place at the beginning of the Trump administration right before he's um, uh, about to be inaugurated and um, a woman who is in her 20s, unnamed, snoops through her boyfriend's phone and discovers that he's not cheating on her, but he is, in fact, operating an anonymous conspiracy theory meme account on Instagram. Um, this inspires her to break up with him because she sort of wanted to break up with him anyway. And But before she can do that, something happens and foils her bizarre sort of um, narcissistic self-obsessed plan to create the perfect breakup. And she ends up moving to Berlin where um, instead of learning new things about a, a foreign culture or, you know, um, getting over what has happened to her, she makes an okay Cupid profile and uh, becomes a compulsive liar and comes up with different personas on all of the dates she goes on. That was an excellent uh, synopsis uh, of your novel. Yeah. And I, I kind of like that you skipped over that one thing. I don't know. We, there's a way in which we, we need it to explain things, but maybe we don't. Let's try. So I'm going to skip ahead in, in the notes that I have for this. I, I get to, down to something that I think is the nut of what it would be fun to talk about here in the first segment. It's something that I'm wrestling with thematically in your novel. Uh, and, and that is kind of the tension between the undeniable truth that the digital revolution transformed culture and transformed us right down to the dendrite level. And my competing suspicion that a lot of the things in the novel, a lot of the kind of dysfunctions in the novel are millennia old human foibles, just writ larger and faster. I mean, deception, mistrust, impersonation. Um, I could go on. These aren't things that started in, in you know, 1990. These are things that have been around forever. So I don't know. Can you maybe play around with that tension a little bit? 
Sure. And I think, too, that's something that I'm always trying to figure out how to articulate our relationship to the Internet or how to talk about the Internet, because I think the sort of go to doomsday kind of attitude is it's totally altered our um, brains and the way that we interact with each other. And it's totally changed our lives. But at the same time, I think this is how people have reacted to new technology um, for, as you say, uh, hundreds of years um, and uh, reflecting that new technology in uh, literature also or, or in film, which is itself a new technology that has caused everyone to freak out, uh, is also always sort of created more of a fuss than maybe it ought to because it's a very natural sort of thing um, for a writer to do. Uh, but I don't know, you know, I can't, I can't decide, like, if I think that the way that I act is to do with my being on Twitter or social media all the time, or if I would be acting in this way um, anyway, and it's just sort of social media is a conduit for that behavior, right? And I think I leaned more towards the latter, but but I have to admit that social media does create interesting um, circumstances. <laughs> it, it creates different kinds of social context and it creates different kinds of opportunities because of the parameters of the technology that people learn and adapt to quite rapidly. Does that make sense? Yes. Although I want to just back up in, in what you just said and, and just grab one thread of it and say that you said in, in that uh, you can't decide if how you act is dictated by these things. And, and in a way, this gets into the conflation between you and narrator, anonymous narrator, because I was really asking you more about questions about how she acts. Um, and I don't oh. know, can you can't react to that? Sure, but I think, I think if, some, if, if a writer is using her own, you know, persona or her, herself in some way, I at least try and see it as like a projection into the world at large, right? So I have a bunch of data that I've gathered from living in the world and other people might, might have similar, you know, have had similar experiences, right? So I don't think that I'm like speaking, if I'm, you know, if I'm talking about social media, my experience with social media obviously plays a role in what I think about it. Um, but but there is a, is a sort of knowing, um, winking conflation between myself and my narrator in the book, uh, which I think gets at a, a different set of questions that the, the book is asking about what the internet does or does not do um, to our sense of self and our, 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 the way we relate to the world, but also the way the world relates to us. Right. There's a way in which no question that I'm going to be able to ask you today hasn't been anticipated either by this book or by interviews that you've, that you've given. So, yeah, there's a segment there's a moment in the book where a narrator is writing, as I crossed, caught Busser Dam, I don't know if I'm saying that right, uh, to assess a bakery's offerings. The author laughed about how irritating it was to be asked to what extent her novels derived from her life without saying to what extent her novels derived from her life. So you kind of, your, your character and you, the writer, you've kind of anticipated this moment in a series of conversations you're having uh, in the course of this publicity tour, right? This is both an interesting question and maybe a not interesting question. No, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. And to a certain extent, I think that the reason I wanted to write about it in a novel instead of writing an essay is that I think that the form of fiction allows you to answer it in a more in a more complete way than the way, you know, just speaking to an interview, speaking to an interviewer allows you to do. Um, and, and yeah, she's also, you know, the narrator is also walking around listening to a podcast where an author mm -hmm. is being interviewed and and reading, you know, tweets about books that have come out that are, you know, real books that had come out at the time in 2017 and things like that. So I think, 
I see the book as operating in the quote unquote real world. Um, and, and, or I, I, I refuse to deny that the book has a, a, is situated in the real world, even if many people want to read fiction as an escape or as a way to see themselves somewhere else. Right. I, but I love what you said before that, because I, I had the same thought, which is that there is a way in which Lauren Euler or me or anybody else sort of opining uh, in, in some form of social criticism lacks some of the standing, oddly enough, that a well-drawn fictional character has. There's something more true about what a fictional character says. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I think, too, just the the it's, it's a much freer form to, to sort of you can insert essayistic passages, right? You can, there, my character is often opining. Um, and in real life, you know, people are often opining, but, but uh, the, the, the set, the way that you can mess around with plot and with structure and things allows you to communicate in a much more sort of almost intuitive way than um, if I'm just writing an argumentative essay of the, of the sort you might read in, a, in the op-ed pages or, or a book review. Well, also, your character's uh, kind of relationship with the truth is is made more, it's kind of a philo dough at a certain point because she's kind of an unreliable narrator who says, I'm an unreliable narrator periodically, uh, and is kind of constantly commenting on her unreliability, which somehow or other may create the kind of reverse illusion of reliability, right? Yeah, and I think, too, there has been this conversation about, you know, how every you know everything is you know everything is fake everything is constructed nobody is truly reliable we're all deluded in some way or another um and i think that that's it's almost an overcorrection at times and i think that the narrator is sort of like i understand that we're all in this <laughs> horrible confusing mess um and we're sort of bombarded with like varying degrees of truth at any given time and she, I see at least her voice as a very stable element, if even if the sort of things that she's saying are highly um, suspect. Uh, but she often tells you when she's lying to other people. And I think that that you can see her going through the world um, being deceptive rather than she's trying to deceive you necessarily. Right. So, you know, I, as I was sort of struggling with that original question, what's different? I mean, you know, Shakespeare's comedies rely really heavily on impersonation and kind of there's like actually a lot of catfishing that goes mm -hmm. on in Shakespeare's comedies. You know, you have uh, a, a girl pretending to boy, be a boy to pretend, pretending to be a girl or, you know, I mean, if you go through them, all, there's a, a lot of that. But I think and, and 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 I don't know, we just did a show about Hitchcock. Hitchcock's movies. 75% of them are just all about the question of who can you trust? Can you trust what somebody says about themselves? Uh, you know, is this person's represent, representation of uh, his, him or herself trustworthy? Was I wrong to distrust that other person? Uh, it, it's all about that. I think the difference is that in those in those cases, there's a clear objective, you know, and as you like it, uh, you know, Rosalind is disguised as a boy to find out Orlando's true feelings for her as a girl without revealing herself. And, and usually in Hitchcock movies, people have, you know, some fiendish purpose if they are, in fact, lying. In your book, and I think in general in Internet culture, there's more of a lying or impersonating or being untrustworthy almost for the sake of it, almost for the thrill of that thing itself. Uh, is that fair? Absolutely. And I think something that like when I started writing the book, the thing that was bothering me and the thing that I wanted to 
look at is is the question of where motivation has gone, right? And I think that I was just watching people do things online all day. Um, I had a job as a sort of uh, a, a blogger journalist advice. And I was, I had to be on Twitter all day and I would just watch the things people would do. And a lot of them seemed to be basically motiveless um, or to have the most pathetic sort of banal motivations that you could imagine. And it, it became almost unbelievable, right? Like you couldn't believe that you were watching this thing uh, unfold in front of you. And um, I think that <laughs> not being... The, what you're saying is that a lot of the stories of impersonation of the past have a very clear, you know, they make a lot of sense and they become sort of morality plays or, or um, allegories or, or things like that or, or metaphors or something like that. But I think uh, something about the way that this stuff plays out now is, is that people want to, to, you know, um, they when you're watching it, you want to, to make it a morality play or you want to make it mean something, but actually it doesn't really mean very much. And that is extremely alienating and um, very bizarre. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are happening. I think one of the things that makes the Internet different is its capacity or maybe its illusory capacity for self-augmentation, right? I mean, going back to the cartoon on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. You know, (laughs) one of the things that the Internet promises is or offers is you could try to create a vastly improved and higher status version of yourself. And in so doing, if you were really good at it, you might really attract a you know, pretty large following. You could become an Instagram influencer or whatever. I still haven't really quite wrapped my mind <laughs> about what that can be. But, you know, there's sort of that idea, right, that in some ways uh, um, a, a person can exceed his or her station simply by playing that game better. Mm-hmm. But I also think if this were a sort of old school novel or, or, or a play or something, the moral of that story would be it's actually very sad and lonely because you can't, you know, reveal your true self to others. Uh, but I think the way that it plays out in reality is that maybe it would be quite enjoyable for you and you would just, you know, your true self would be someone who gets a kick out of um, pretending to not be a dog on the internet as it were. Right. Uh, like, I don't, you know, I think we always wait for some horrible reveal about, you know, in catfishing stories or or whatever. But I think a lot of the truth of it is that it probably does sort of work out for them a lot of the time. <laughs> well, but, uh, on the other hand, I would say, by the way, talking to Lauren Euler, uh, her new novel is Fake Accounts. I would say fake accounts leans a little bit more in the former direction that, you know, that there is ultimately this is a very funny book. And it's um, written in a, in a very I'm not surprised to see Sloan Crosley blurbing you. She's been on the show a lot. And I think you guys are both very, very, very funny writers, but often writing about kind of a darker under material. And, and it seems to me that there is ultimately a sense uh, of the former thing that ultimately this is a a, a a lonely road, you know, that leads to a lonely place. Yes, absolutely. But there aren't any sort of, cons- you know, there aren't consequences, right? Like she doesn't lose her job. Um, the thing that happens to her is is sort of very bizarre. And she, she tells, you know, she eventually tells her roommate, but, but it's not, it doesn't have this sort of grand reveal quality. It doesn't, you know, it does it, what does it mean for her actually not that much, right? And I think that that is 
part of the lonely road element of it or, or the sort of the, the sad conclusion of the book um, is, is that even in this sort of, if you're living this sort of strange, um, stranger than fiction reality, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, end, it doesn't have a nice conclusion, I guess. Right. I forgot to mention that uh, Lauren Euler, who I'm talking to right now, will be at the Mark Twain house. Are you going to be physically at the Mark Twain house or is this no, a Zoomy thing or what? what are it's we... Zooming, yeah. cl- a classic Zoom. Yeah. Um, I wish I were there, but yeah. unfortunately, no. Yeah, we're not at that point yet. Uh, so she will be uh, virtually at the Mark Twain house and museum Tuesday, March 23rd from 7 to 8 p.m. The event is free. You can register at Mark Twain house. Dot org. Obviously, uh, you and Twain have that quality of both being very funny and, and somewhat dark at the same time. Um, so. I think that that's the way they get it. That's the best way, you know, to get it go down, let it go down easy. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. No, Robertson Davies said something about if you scratch a humorist underneath, you will find a very serious person. Uh, and, and for that exact reason, because it does go down uh, easier. So I, we, we have to just pause for a moment and then we'll go to a break. But I, I do want to pause for a moment uh, and talk about Felix, uh, the, the narrator's boyfriend, who, as you say, in your artful synopsis, um, turns out to be this kind of secret online conspiracy theorist. And to me, well, I, I don't know. First of all, I, just, I want to let you just sort of flesh that out a little bit. You know, why, why that particular plot twist? Why go there? What attracted you to that? So at the beginning of the book, the narrator is like, I'm going to snoop through his phone, finds it, and, and there's some long, long paragraphs about what it's like to snoop through, so how one actually goes about snooping through someone's phone. Um, and I got that idea. So when I started writing a book, uh, QAnon did not exist. The book ends before QAnon exists. So I started writing it because my boyfriend at the time wrote an article about Instagram conspiracy theorists and how the Instagram platform in particular was interesting for conspiracy for propagating conspiracy theories because it's very hard to link out of the platform, particularly back then. Now you can link a little bit there, but but it was very much about how this how the way that the app works and the sort of technical realities of the app meant that you could post sort of outlandish, ridiculous things that were much harder to sort of fact check than if you were on Reddit or on on Twitter or something like that. Um, And what I was interested in was whether the people who were running these accounts, some of which were very popular even back in late 2016, um, like whether they really believed it, how much they really believed it, like was it possible that they were totally faking it um, and totally lying or were some of them, you know, 50% believers, but also just really leaning into that 50% and, and going with it, even if they sort of knew deep down that none of this was right. Um, And I, you know, I don't, I don't think that I ever figured out if they were all lying. Right. I think some, it probably depends, but I was interested in making this kind of, um, character who's also Felix is also an artist, uh, which I think is kind of, kind of important to his, his characterization uh, and trying to see, have, have someone else really wanting to know what his motivations are and, and writing this boyfriend character who is totally resistant to being known in any meaningful way and, and very artful and kind of funny about it at times, but ultimately a, to- a total blank in terms of what you can determine about him. 
Well, you know, it, it is interesting about that because as we were uh, preparing for the show, and Betsy, the producer Betsy Kaplan and I, we just kind of share a Google Doc and we're typing things in. And at one point I started to type. I type in this very annoying purple font. Uh, <laughs> and I was starting to type in uh, the famous Vonnegut quote from Mother Night. We must, uh, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful what we pretend to be. And then I looked down further in the notes and I discovered that's already been brought up uh, in connection <laughs> with this. But to me, that speaks to your question. You know, do they really believe this? Do they believe it 50 percent? And my, my answer, based on observation, is it's a gradual thing, you know. And if you start at 50, uh, after two or three weeks, if, in fact, you're getting a lot of dopamine hits from people enthusiastically responding, you you add another 5 percent, another 10 percent. This is a thing that, you know, that builds up uh, and because, in fact, there is some truth to that Vonnegut quote. I think that the you know the more reinforcement you get for a particular style of communication or discourse or content, the more you do it. Absolutely, and I think too. I haven't followed the story that much recently, but but since Trump lost and Biden's now in office, you do see occasional stories about how the QAnon believers are sort of devastated and they don't know where to turn and they feel a little bit betrayed. And it seems like they're really like processing the fact that it was all made up, right? Um, and that they, you can see sometimes when you read interviews with them, the way that they're al- allowing themselves to keep buying in, right? Like, they're allowing themselves to keep committing to this. Um, and it's not so different from the way, I think, when you talk to someone who's really uh, gung-ho about the possibilities of social media and you bring up, you know, objection after objection. And they're like, no, actually it's allowing, it, it's creating connection and it doesn't mean that. And, and I've made great friends off of it and all this stuff. And you really, you can tell that they, they don't fully buy it, but they have to buy it because they've spent so much time doing it. Uh, and I think the amount of time we spend doing things is, is an interesting question to me, at least, and, and also appears in the novel. Yeah, in did, don't you don't with you, this Vonnegut quote too? Yeah, don't you mention sunk cost? I, I'm trying to. I, I, <laughs> yeah, the, absolutely. Yes, okay. So yes, um, there's there is yeah. the more time you spend uh, doing something, the more invested you are in it. The more you have to. I mean, if you know, this is something that um, there's a guy named Peter Weiner, who's a was a Republican strategist. He's kind of a never Trumper, and he talks about this. He talks about we have to go to break here, but um, he talks about why is it why was it so hard all the way through for there to be a deal breaker that would you know, something so aberrant and toxic and repellent that, that Trump would do that his followers, you know, would no longer support him. And he talked about it that way as sort of a cognitive sunk cost because nobody really wants to be told that this thing that you invested a lot of your time and enthusiasm in was in fact uh, not only a, an illusion but this, you know, repellent sinkhole. Uh, so you just sort of double down, you know. Yeah. That's okay. I, I can live with that. Yeah, go ahead and respond then we'll go to break. No, I mean, it's also just kind of a scam right like he's tricking you into doing you know into doing something and you people really don't want to be embarrassed right. i think that's very simple yeah i was an idiot is not something that people no. you know uh, <laughs> typically say with a great level of comfort all right we're talking to lauren euler right now the book is fake accounts uh and we will take a break and then we will come back
So we are back. We're talking to Lauren Euler. Uh, her essays have appeared in the London Review of Books, The New Yorker, New York Times Magazine, Harper's Book Forum, uh, New York Magazine's The Cut and Elsewhere. And she is going to be at the Mark Twain House and Museum uh, virtually uh, on March 23rd, Tuesday, from 7 to 8 p.m. It's a free event. You can register at marktwainhouse.org. Her new book, her first novel, is Fake Accounts. Um I want to talk about masks for just a second. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was so good that you were like enthusiastic. Like I was thinking you could have gone, what's to talk about masks? Uh, and, I mean, it's weird too because obviously we're going through a period where we're all wearing actual masks. Uh, but you want but to talk about metaphorical masks. Metaphor- well, I mean, just I want to point out, first of all, that at the end of the novel, um, uh, the narrator finds out something really important that we are not going to disclose from somebody who says he's wearing a mask, by which he means he's wearing a cosmetic. Uh, facial mask. I don't know exactly what you call that, but he's got gunk all over his face, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and at the beginning of the novel, the, the narrator who is about to hack into her boyfriend's phone is, I think, slowed down a little bit or something because she puts on all this gunk on her skin, but she has to let it absorb and it takes and for a while before she puts another layer on. <laughs> and, and it seems to me that, th- that this and so I'm going to link that to something else, which is, and I said before, there's nothing I can bring up or try to accuse you of or anything that you haven't already dealt with somewhere else. So in an interview you did uh, in End of the World, you say, when I see publicity campaigns, I'm very affected by them, even though I know how they work. Uh, I sat in on publicity for commercial books that I ghost wrote. Now I'm doing publicity for my own book. And I understand that you're basically trying to trick people. <laughs> you are the first author ever to say that. And I don't really feel like you're trying to trick me. But does that have something to do with masks? I mean, you know, are you wearing kind of author publicity tour mask thing right now? Well, I think the thing, so yeah, there are a few jokes about skincare, which is very popular right now and and was when I wrote the book, uh, throughout the book. And and I think what you're doing with skincare is, is trying to make, in, you know, Unlike with makeup, where you're covering your your face up and you're trying to enhance what you look like, uh, and you can often tell you're wearing makeup. What, what you're doing with skincare is trying to like essentially improve your skin so that you don't have to wear a, a makeup anymore. Um, and I think as much as I think maybe publicity is more like makeup, which is you're trying to really like make the flashier elements stand out, and you're not trying to like essentially improve the essential qualities of whatever it is that 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 you're trying to sell um but but trying to sell it's been interesting to read the various publicity but also the reviews of the book um and and how they frame it because I'm so resistant to that stuff usually and so like reactive to it I think and I think that's why I, I write a lot of book reviews myself because I feel that the the way that most you know works of literature are are portrayed um it, it's just not right and it's interesting to see to see your own work be portrayed in various ways as like and not quite right you know um but I don't know if it relates to skin I think it's more like makeup <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> this is a long-winded way of saying that. Well, no, I you know, uh, I not to get really metacognitive about this or or anything, but I, you know, when I'm interviewing somebody, 
and this is a, I'm bringing this up because it's something else that you've written about. When I'm interviewing somebody like you or, or anybody, and I always say this to my producers too, I said, ideally, we're just going to have a conversation. We're just going to like talk about a lot of stuff, you know. Right. Uh, and of course, that's not necessarily the agenda of the person that I'm talking to. In fact, you know, the, like the most famous conversational movie in the world, I would assume, is My Dinner with Andre. And I just yeah. interviewed Andre Gregory a couple of weeks ago, and he has a memoir out, and he just really wanted to like plug it kind of relentlessly and every once in a while I would bring up a thing from the memoir and he would rather than tell the story he would go well they should just buy the memoir and read it I mean he would like say that right on the air (laughs) and and I thought well you're like supposedly famous for conversations although the conversation in that movie is in fact notoriously one-sided and and posturing and weird but you know what I'm saying that you so you wrote a whole piece I think it was in Harper's and kind of like sort of a um, sort of the detritus of the Trump era about that whole question of conversation. Like, are we getting a lot worse at it? And I don't even know how I expect you to respond to everything that I just said, but I do expect you to respond. Well, I think for, well, I'll start, I'll start by humanizing myself. I think every time I give an interview, I always want to like encapsulate the book perfectly so Mm -hmm. that it's selling, but also I explain it in some way that Mm -hmm. I, that I like, I explain, I get at the core of the book, right? And I express that. And then everybody who encounters the interview, like really understands what the book is and, and obviously also wants to buy it, but but more has some sort of meaningful connection with the idea that I've espoused, right? And that's just totally impossible. Not only because hopefully the book is, as Andre suggests, the book is like the best version of the idea that you want to express in an ideal world. Um, so I do understand like wanting, wanting to, to, you know, pitch yourself in some way, but having a good conversation is, is much better. And I think particularly if you're listening to it instead of reading it or, or, you know, feeling like there's a genuine rapport, there's a, you genuinely understand each other, even if you might not agree all the time, um, about what you're saying. And I think that Peace and Harbor's they were doing, they did a package about what life was going to be like after Trump. And they picked a bunch of different themes. Um, one of which was conversation. They also did books and, um, movies and, and other sort of more off the wall things. Um, and I think I was just thinking about how paranoid and sort of distant people are not only because of Trump, not, not really because of Trump, but because of, the way we live and that there's this constant sort of atmosphere of threat in a lot of my interactions. Um, I think probably because of the internet uh, in part, but, but it, it makes doing press uh, feel very volatile when I would rather just have like a nice talk with you and then go off the air. Um, (laughs) I do, I do do hope that's what's happening right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, well, you know, there's a phrase that I use sometimes: it's the narcissism of the present moment. Uh, mm-hmm. And and what I mean is that people, and this really happened a lot during the Trump era, people say this is the worst ever. You know, this is yeah. the worst time ever. And once you threw the pandemic on top of it, you had a slightly better <laughs> argument. But, but <laughs> yeah. I, I still felt like I don't know. I lived through the Nixon. I'm old. I lived through the Nixon era and Vietnam and you know periods of time when bombs were going off all over America, like real bombs, like a lot uh, all over America. And I mean, there are you know, in a way conversation has been an imperiled species for for like forever you know I don't know you can 
go back and reread the picture of Dorian Gray and there's, you know, yeah. Wilde is essentially lamenting and also exulting uh, in, in, you know, what's happening to our ability to communicate with one another. We have a little bit of a habit of thinking that the thing we're living through right now represents some kind of cataclysm. And sooner or later, we're going to be right. And maybe we right. were right this time. But I don't know. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's difficult also because I'm 30 years old, so I haven't lived through that much. I haven't lived through that much, right? So I, and I don't have a sort of accurate view of anything that happened before like 2006, say, right? Um, And so I think this sort of reaching for some some past that was better um, is totally understandable because you're like, is this all that, you know, it's always been like this. It's sort of very depressing to think that everyone for all of history has been living in this sort of teetering, like threatened, um, like paranoid way. And so I totally understand wanting to say like, oh, in the past they had a better, uh, you know, for X, Y, Z reasons. Um, and, and also, you know, you'll never know, you'll never know if it's true. Uh, but but the the feeling that like something terrible is about to happen and it hasn't happened yet allows people to act in in very sort of egregious or sort of like YOLO you know you only live once YOLOs is a, mm-hmm. a, an acronym from when I was in college I guess mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but but like you only live once kind of attitude where everything feels so extreme and any, anything could be your personal ruin or the apocalypse of, of, of the world that you live in. So I don't know if that's unique. I don't think it probably is. There have been, I think, periods of time when writers have been writing that, you know, everybody's very apocalyptic right now. Um, And then it seems like it recedes and then it comes back because of some geopolitical event or another yeah, I think in some I think, it, I think in some ways it is. There's ways in which it uh, it is worse, or at least okay. it's it's accelerated. It's it's on steroids. It's uh, you know I mean I I think in particular, and this is dealt with in the book too, obviously both through Felix and, and other characters. You know I, I've been teaching a, a seminar, an uh, undergraduate seminar this year, and I th- one of the things we keep coming back to is that question of post truth. You know, not that not that lies haven't been circulated before. Um, and and not that people have not been seduced into believing falsehoods, but the the collapse of any kind of ex- mutually accepted system of validation or invalidation uh, is, I think, w- worse than it's ever been. I, I don't know if you read Richard Hofstadter's work, uh, uh, you know, anti-intellectualism and American life and the paranoid mm-hmm. style in American politics. You realize it's not that new, but right. but there's something that's happening right now that makes it impossible to go to somebody and say, no, you you're incorrect for thinking this and. I'm going to show you how and why you're incorrect and be able to have that be a successful transfer. There's something broken now that I've never seen broken before. And and it's right there in fake accounts. Yeah. And I think it it makes you feel like you're like throwing a, like, I don't know, you're like throwing a tennis ball at the wall instead of coming back at you. It just falls to the floor over and over and over (laughs) again. And and it's, it's really uh, disturbing. And I also wonder it creates this perverse sense of possibility where, where I think everybody's walking around sort of when you're walking around distrusting everything, you're also sort of thinking about other, other explanations or other ways that something can be true. So there's always this, like the, there's like a crisis of interpretation that is, is sort of weirdly 
um, open, right? Like the paranoia that we have or the sort of sense of, sense of, you know, distrust is, is weirdly capacious for me at least. Right. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I also just think it, my life, all other things being equal would be a lot better if I didn't have the internet and I certainly didn't have the internet on my phone, on my personal all the time. It, it was, I was giving a series of lectures. To, uh, it was one of those sort of college programs where retired people were coming to these kind of plenary lectures. And at one point, so looking out on this sea of people who were, you know, most of whom were 70 or older, I would say, I said, imagine that there was a big red switch on the wall. And if I threw it, we'd lose the, we'd go back to before the internet, you know? So any convenience or anything like that, that you think you're getting out of the internet right now would go away, but so would a lot of these other problems, the kinds of problems that you and I are talking about right now. How many of you would throw the switch? All of them, (laughs) all of them (laughs) raised their hands. Everybody was willing to give up everything just to sort of go back to the pre-internet state. Now they're, you know, they're a specific demographic, but it kind of sounds like situationally anyway, you're almost saying the same thing here. Um, And I'm not saying we need to go back to like the Stone Age. I'm not saying we need to be doing like 19th century cosplay. I just think like, (laughs) what if we went back to 1997, you know, like what, that seems like a good level of technology. You can send an email, you can do all sorts of things, but it's not, (laughs) it's not so extreme. Right. Um, Yeah. You know, I think also it's strange. It's, it's strange that, that so many people also think this and, and not just of, of all sorts of demographics. I think like lots of my peers mm-hmm. sh- would surely agree with us. Right. All right. Well, unfortunately, Lauren, you don't get to pick. Uh, so we're, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back with our final segment with Lauren Euler about her book, Fake Accounts. Okay, everyone. Welcome to grammar class. Today we're learning about semicolons. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yes, Lonely Island? We use semicolons every day. Can you give me an example? Oh, hell yeah. Get ready for a whale of a time. Shamu. My whole team coming clean. Shampoo. These dudes is comic relief. Whoopie. And I'm the mother... When you see me better cross the street, Frogger, then go home and write about it. Blogger, did I do that? All right. So, uh, first of all, I want to say uh, it's great to be back in, here in the studio. This is my second day uh, back in the studio. We we fled the studio exactly a year ago. I think well, it was a year ago today we did our first remote show uh, from our other locations. And it is my great uh, uh, pleasure and privilege to thank some people. Uh, actually, functioning as our technical producer today, uh, running the board, is Gina Amatruda. This is like you're having some problems with your electricity and you call an electrical contractor and Thomas Edison shows up. It's like that. It's like that's how big it is to have Gene uh, running the board today. But Cat Pastor is off. Uh, and then Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode. This episode, which features Lauren Euler, her new novel is Fake Accounts. She lives in Ithaca, New York. We're supposed to mention that. Um, and uh, is therefore unfamiliar with sunlight. Um, and um, uh, Lauren Euler will be at the Mark Twain House and Museum uh, Tuesday, March 23rd, 7 to 8 p.m. The event is free. You can register at marktwainhouse.org. All right. In the time we have left, there's so much to talk about. And yeah. But we just did, you know, we went out of the break. See, I, I timed it out all wrong. We went into the break playing the semicolon Lonely Island song, uh, and we hadn't talked about semicolons yet. So we better talk about semicolons. I'm with you, by the way. I love semicolons. I think they're great. But maybe you should make your case. 
Oh, I love, I mean, I love all punctuation, but I have particular fondness for semicolons. Maybe it's my sort of reactionary nature. And I think semicolons get particularly um, hated upon in, in grammar discourse, right? And I think there's a long history of, of writers condemning use of semicolon or, or very, you know, cautiously ad- advising people to use them sparingly, like as if, as if they're a limited resource. Um, but I think that they are just really fun. I like to make the page a little bit messy and I, I like to um, create a tenuous sense of connection, which is what I, I sort of think of them in a more like theoretical, spiritual way. Yeah, I feel as like I feel as though the semicolon is my ability to say, I have another thing I want to say that amounts to an independent clause. But I'm really not ready to use a period yet. You know, I'm not, I'm, I haven't sufficiently departed from what we're talking about that I need to start a whole new sentence. And then sitting there in the toolbox is this thing, which, as you say, people are very suspicious of it. It's like, you know, maybe it was inserted into our, uh, our punctuation repertoire by communists in the 1950s or something <laughs> like it, and we'll become weaker <laughs> if we use semicolons. I don't understand the prejudice against it at all. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I think that there's in general, when we, people talk about writing, uh, they, they have, they want to cling to these very specific rules and sort of pedagogical things that they have learned. Um, and because writing is horrifying a lot of the time and people want to believe that there's like one way to do it or, or a wrong way to do it or, or, or whatever. Um, and I just think that the, the right way to do it is whatever way makes it good. Uh, and, you know, semicolons help in that significantly. So the, I think the other thing we have to talk to talk about in our remaining minutes here, we're talking to Lauren Euler, her new novel is Fake Accounts, is, you know, you are in the position of uh, having had a, a pretty major reputation as a literary critic heading into this. And this is uh, um, kind of a, a special sort of, and, and sometimes a rather unsparing literary critic, uh, unsparing in praise and unsparing in criticism. Um, so I, I don't know, maybe talk, to, first of all, did you feel any particular vulnerabilities putting your, you're getting great reviews, we should say that, but putting your first novel out there, having, you know, had some pretty harsh things to say about, about other people's work? Yeah, I think so. And I think that it actually made me have a healthier attitude towards it because um, I always wanted to write a book and particularly a novel when I started writing reviews. Um, And so I always, you know, thought about it because periodically there will be a conversation in book world about how the reviews are too nice. And it's a problem that most of the people who write book reviews also write books. So everybody wants to create this sort of karmic um, shield around them by giving, you know, not making it any enemies. Uh, and I think that it creates this sort of um, disillusioning, alienating effect in, in the, the discourse, quote unquote, as it's called. Uh, and I just for some reason, there's something about me, I don't know what it is, that makes me really mad when people lie in this kind of genteel, like, literary criticism realm, right? Like, everybody, we're supposed to care about ideas, we're supposed to care about literature, but we're all, like, you know, extremely kind towards one another for some reason, and I just don't think, it just doesn't fly with with me. So, uh, 
all that's to say that I have been actually very happy that I've gotten a wide variety of reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, everyone wants as many reviews as possible, but but it seems like people are more comfortable talking about my book as an actual product that someone has made themselves as something that someone has made rather than like a beautiful beautiful evidence of their soul or whatever that they just happened to that they couldn't help but write right like I think there's this attitude about writing that that we must do it and you can't control that much of it and it's you know your spirit or your soul or whatever and I think I think about books and art in general um as things that are made. Right. There isn't, I mean, yes, uh, I, there is such a thing as a creative impulse, but there isn't, I, I agree about the must, you know, there isn't <laughs> anything that really must happen. You, we, decide, yes. we decide that it's going to happen. We decide it's going to happen a certain way. And I, I also, I, I, I agree with you about that. There's sort of a sense of mutually assured destruction in the world of, of literature and, and criticisms. And there's this kind of sense that we could destroy each other, so let's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I'll just tell you uh, and, and tell the listeners that just uh, as just as a little joke, I tweeted at uh, Lauren earlier today this piece I wrote in 1999 called I Am Michiko Kakutani, where I claimed to be the famous and often very sharp-edged uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book critic uh, of the New York Times. And uh, what I'm going to tell you now, I shouldn't tell you if I cared at all about my literary career, which I no longer have, so I, I don't have to really worry. But the, the first place I submitted that was to in The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And the, some people from the New Yorker got back to me and they said, we think this is a really, really funny piece, but we're not going to run it because a lot of us, uh, to be honest, you know, we, we've got books coming out, we're writers, <laughs> uh, and we are just not going to piss off in Chico Kakunani. I mean, they were just were kind of honest about that fact. It's uh, so funny, though. I would never review someone's book if I had like a personal, a personal issue with them. And also, I think, you know, if one of the people that I criticized reviewed my book, everybody would know why they were doing it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it it wouldn't be taken as the ultimate truth on the matter, I think. Um, You know, it's, it's, there are, there is, the idea that Michiko Kakutani wouldn't, would would negatively review someone at the New Yorker (laughs) because the magazine published uh, a satirical piece about her is quite bizarre because also I thought the New Yorker and the New York Times were supposed to have a feud. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> I think fear, you know, fear looms large in this world, and some of it yeah. is because, you know, with each passing year, it feels as though. I don't know. The pot of gold gets smaller to a certain degree, right? The stakes are bigger because what you're fighting over, whatever, it, however we would describe that, seems like a smaller resource, right? Literary acclaim yes. and the ability to to have a book be something. Yes, absolutely. Um, and you know, I think people it's because people buy fewer and fewer books, and the you know the the sorts of books that used to be New York Times bestsellers. Uh, are not the same today as they were even 20 years ago, I think, right, in my understanding. So we've got about a minute and thirty seconds. Oh no! Left. So <laughs> we've I, opened a can of worms. I, yeah, I, well, like, yeah, we can't we can't open any can. I think I'll just ask you a, a simpler question that could easily have a twenty minute answer, which is, I, I don't know, three or four years out, when people from here, when people talk about fake accounts by Lauren Euler, what do you want them to say? Uh, oh, that's a good question. I think I want it. It. 
I, oh, that's really hard. I mean, obviously I do want them to talk about it. And I think there are certain things that I do in the book so that it doesn't feel dated. I describe things, I think, quite in detail so that particularly the technology stuff resonates. Um, but I think that I hope that they talk about the sort of um, timeless themes that you started the show talking about, right? Like the way we deceive each other, the way that uh, technology can be alienating, but also sort of perversely generative um, the and semicolons, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Well, as you, you've landed the plane beautifully uh, and we, uh, we are now taxiing towards the gate. So uh, we've been talking to Lauren Euler. Uh, her new novel uh, is Fake Accounts. Uh, people should uh, get it in some kind of reputable way, ideally from an independent bookstore. I think she would like you to do that, too, uh, knowing some of her, her thoughts on the industry. And then be prepared for March 23rd, 7 to 8, uh, Mark Twain House Museum. You will not leave your house. Neither will she. But Lauren Euler will be at the Mark Twain House Museum. Uh, virtually 7 to 8 p.m. The event is free and you can register at marktwainhouse.org. Lauren Euler, I hope this was a satisfying conversation for you. I enjoyed it very much. It was so great. Thank you for having me. Okay. And to the rest of you, goodbye. Thanks once again to Betsy and Jean. And off we go. And over to me, poetaster will cross the great plains Keen and lovely and awful You relate the lost great American novels and and freeze flood lit But at least they didn't run to their undying crib